0: And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. P. Andrew Sandlin, founder and president of the Center for Cultural Leadership. Uh, Andrew, it's an honor to have you on with us today.
1: Well, maybe it's a greater honor for me to be here, Dan. I appreciate what you do, and I enjoy every time we do this.
0: (laughs) Well, your background is uh, you're an ordained minister and you're a cultural theologian, and um, you seek to apply uh, the historic biblical faith to the contemporary world. Uh, you've got some specialties in philosophy, theology, social, political science, the history of ideas, and uh, you're married with uh, adult children and grandchildren, so you've um, had a lot of experience in life. Um, one of the areas I'd like for us to talk to today is uh, really captured in an article that you recently penned uh, with the title, Christian Counterpunching, and subheading, Turning the Other Cheek to Cultural Evil is Selling Christians into Slavery. Well, that just really resonated with me, and um, maybe we can go through this article a little bit, Andrew, and you can explain to our listeners um, where you're coming from here, you know, from the from the top down.
1: <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. Uh, well, um, the very idea, when you hear this language, Christian counterpunching, to many believers, uh, it sounds counterintuitive yeah. and uh, almost fleshly or worldly, a way of worldly operation is retaliation and of course there can be a, a sinful way of doing that but uh, the bible is quite clear that uh, if we live holy lives uh, we must oppose evil uh, including evil in the culture and um, one of the first things i could say is that in genesis three fifteen, we have what theologians call the prot or proto evangelium that is the first gospel message and it was uh Given by delivered by the first gospel preacher, and that is God himself, the first gospel preacher, gave that gospel message to to Eve, that uh, that to her seed, we know from the New Testament to be Jesus Christ, would crush, uh, older translations say bruise, but it really is strong, crush the head of the seed of the serpent, that is, of course, Satan and all who are united to him in disobedience and unbelief. So, right from the beginning, we have this promise of counter-punching, that sin punches out and does harm to God's creation, and God with his people uh, punch back uh, to oppose evil. So, uh, to allow evil to go on unmolested in the world without a, a strong Christian reaction and response, an aggressive one, that is not a Christian way to, to do things. So many Christians today, Dan, are given to a, a sort of uh, what I call resignation theology mm-hmm. rather than resistance theology. They uh, see evil, uh, and in our culture, of course, everything from abortion to same-sex marriage, so-called marriage, to uh, pornography and uh, deprivation of economic liberty, socialism, and, of course, in more recent terms, these draconian uh, political edicts in COVID-19 that we've talked about on previous programs and uh, uh, the, the leftism of Black Lives Matter and the monument toppling the leftist racism, and I could go on and on and on, their attitude is, well, yes, this is bad, but our responsibility is to kind of retreat backwards and just hope for the best, and maybe the rise of all of this evil indicates that Jesus will come soon. So in a sort of twisted way, perhaps even it's a good thing that is happening. That, I believe, is radically unbiblical.
0: Yeah, I was thinking as you were talking about that, um, some of this almost ties into um, what we believe regarding the end times. Um, Some people almost need, they have a theology that things are going to get worse and worse. Uh, Jesus is basically a a big loser in history in terms of the spread of the gospel. And so, um, well, the Bible doesn't share that view, does it?
1: No, it doesn't. And um, it's remarkable that we have, well, I mentioned Genesis 3.15, and there's so many other texts, but let's uh, bring up just quickly the so-called Great Commission in Matthew 28 and parallel passages in the Gospels. Go out and disciple, it says, the nations, the ethnos. Now we, of course, get the idea today that what God is doing is having us preach the Gospel to individuals so that individuals here and there can be converted and come into the Church, and then, of course, there'll be the Second Coming, and there'll be a fairly small number. Uh, That's not the picture we get at all uh, from Matthew 28. It's discipling the nations. And then, of course, we have the promise, Isaiah 65, for example, of uh, all that God is going to do uh, as the gospel expands uh, in the earth. And uh, then we come to the book of Revelation and see the expansion of the kingdom of God and the destruction of Satan with the child that is born from the woman and Satan persecutes, but the dragon is thrown down. And text after text in the scriptures that talk about the advancement uh, of the kingdom of God. And that advancement includes confrontation, Now, a lot of Christians don't like to hear that, Dan. They somehow think that if they avoid confrontation and just sort of live uh, passively quiet lives, that God will bless them. But the Bible doesn't teach that either. Uh, Paul says, don't have any fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Many Christians would agree with that part of the verse in Ephesians. But then he goes on to say, but rather rebuke or reprove them. So it's not enough to avoid evil. We actually have to confront and oppose evil. We have to counterpunch. And on that point, many Christians uh, seem uh, very unwilling, perhaps in some cases even cowardly. Uh, But uh, the Bible, of course, doesn't support that at all.
0: No. Now, it seems to me that um, right away my mind jumps to, my tendency is to jump to um, some kind of a physical military counterpunch, and I'm not writing that off, but isn't it true that, By the preaching of the gospel and the discipleship of the nations, that is a tremendous form of counterpunch, and to preach against sin and say, here is the way, here's the, as it were, the highway of holiness.
1: Yes, that's right. That Christian counterpunching is, of course, principally metaphorical, as you said. Uh, In the Bible, the preaching of the gospel and living according to the law of God and penetrating all of these areas of culture for Christ the King in a peaceful way, aggressive but peaceful way, that's the biblical view. Uh, Other religions don't do it that way. Islam uh, spreads religion by the power of the sword. Yes, Uh, Christianity spreads its faith by the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, according to Ephesians 6. So uh, while, like you said, there are specific cases where the civil magistrate, of course, must... Uh, use force in suppressing very specific external sin. That's not the responsibility of the church or the family. We spread the kingdom of God in counterpunch by preaching the gospel, living the faith, uh, exposing evil, standing up for the truth um, in every situation in, in which God places us. And so doing, God uses that in many cases to turn back evil.
0: Yeah. Now, um... um... There's some groups, Andrew, you write about in, in your paper, and today we're talking with Dr. P. Andrew Sandlin, uh, an article that he's written, Christian Counterpunching, and uh, you show the difference between Reformers, whether they be the magisterial Reformers versus the so-called radical Reformers. Can you explain that to us?
1: Yes, that's a great distinction. Um All of the magisterial reformers, uh, Luther and Calvin uh, and Knox, and of course in the English Reformation, all of them believed in a Christendom, or a public, visible, strong uh, Christianity. Uh, They believed that civil magistrates, we would say politicians, should be Christians. They believed that Christians could serve admirably in the military, according to God's law, of course, and that Christianity should be prominent in a society. Not that every single person would be a Christian, the Bible doesn't teach that, but that a large number of them would be, and that Christianity would influence culture. On the other hand, the radical reformers, uh, sometimes called the Anabaptists, the Mennonites, by the way, that's not equal to Baptists today, but Anabaptists, Mennonites, and various others, their view view was rather that the church should be a small and, as it were, private uh, group, a private institution. They strongly oppose the notion of a Christian civil magistrates, strongly oppose the notion of Christendom, that Christianity should suffuse, should suffuse all of culture, and rather the church should be a small and battered um, minority and be very pure, pure defined, of course, as they define purity. And all of these Calvinists, for example, and Lutherans and even Roman Catholics were inherently worldly because they believe in Christendom. Well, the irony I point out in my article is that even many today in our Reformation tradition, I dare say the majority, would hold the radical reformer's view, which Mm -hmm. is not part of their heritage, rather than the reformational view, which is the Christendom view, that Christianity should impact every area of life and thought. That really is a great irony, and it's a very sad one.
0: Yes, yes, it uh, bothers me to no end. I love the magisterial reformers, as you put it the um some in the early church, very, very early on, were quite pacifist i believe um yeah but that was i think it's safe to say an a misunderstanding
1: it was uh and it's an understandable misunderstanding. remember that the church at the time was in the distinct uh minority, first of course, they were persecuted by the sort of twisted. Uh, what we would call orthodox, but really is a false form of Jewish faith, uh, Judaism rather than the true Jewish faith, Christianity. And then, of course, later, uh, the persecution of the Roman Empire. And so they began then as a, as a persecuted minority. And so they didn't want Christians participating in these uh, evil institutions. Uh, they were fundamentally wrong about that, but it's understandable why. Of course, uh, with the Constantine and his conversion... And when Christianity became legal again, the church then understood. Okay, well, we can participate in these institutions and do it in a responsible way. So uh, this is a good example, Dan, of while we really appreciate uh, many of the church fathers, their teachings are not normative. Only the Bible is normative. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Another headline in your in your article here uh, section is counterpunching is a divine calling. Um yeah. that 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 sets me back at first I think what what is he talking about until I read it and I realize oh I'm starting to get this now can you explain that to our listeners
1: Yes um this is not something counterpunching is not simply an option uh to be called to be a Christian is to call to do battle the bible's quite clear I mentioned Ephesians we think for example of Ephesians 6 and Uh, Christian warfare and the Christian soldier, and Paul there identifying the armor of a a Roman soldier and identifying specific pieces of armor as aspects of the Christian life, Uh, and so we're constantly to do battle. Uh, He says there against the principalities and powers, that's language, of course, for the fallen Satan and other fallen angelic beings, but of course those powers use very tactile and physical individuals in our world, and therefore we have to do battle. Uh, so this notion of, of counterpunching, of actually entering into the battle, is not something we can avoid. Let me put it this way, Dan. To live the Christian life is to live in constant battle. Uh, Paul speaks in Romans chapter 7 of the battle in our own heart, uh, the sort of, as one writer says, the civil war in our own soul. But that, mm. that civil war in our own soul uh, is sort of outwardly manifested in all of life and culture. So it's basically a war between uh, creation worshipers, as that's sort of Paul's language in Romans 1, versus the creator worshipers, that is, those who worship the true triune God through Jesus Christ. And so you see uh, throughout the, not just the Old Testament, certainly it's there, but the New Testament, Paul doing battling with uh, the Judaizers, and Peter doing battling with the false teachers, and John doing uh, doing battle uh, against false uh, teachings in, uh, in his, as you mentioned, in his epistles. And of course, the book of Re- Revelation, uh, 70% of it, is about Christians battling uh, unbelief uh, in the most difficult of circumstances. So it's not possible to avoid counterpunching if we're going to live a faithful Christian life.
0: Mm, yes, we have this responsibility, as you put it in your article, to push back against evil, And we do that, we do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm amazed as I read what God has done when he sent his Holy Spirit to the church. It's like an atom bomb goes off in history.
1: Yes, you've touched on, I think, something that makes a radical distinction between uh, non-Christians and, of course, Christians. Uh, we don't, uh, though we though we fight in our bodies, we don't fight according to what Paul calls the flesh. Mm. Uh, we fight according to the power of the Spirit. Um, and so God has given, through his Holy Spirit, as you mentioned, God has given all the resources of the Church necessary to turn back and defeat evil. I, I don't think many Christians understand that. They seem to think that there can't be any uh, victory, any substantive victory over evil until the eternal state or the second advent but if you think about it that really is to take a swipe at the power of the cross That's the power right. of the resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit um, at Pentecost I was just writing something today Dan at Pentecost uh, the risen Christ King of Kings and Lord of Lords showered down on his people this wonderful gift of the Spirit to empower them this, by the way, is why when the Church seems in dire straits, and let's face it, in the U.S. today, because of all that's going on, even since March, the Church seems in dire straits. Yes. It might be easy to get very pessimistic and say, well, we should throw in the towel, I mean, compared to the strong politicians and compared even Christians that don't believe we should engage, we feel weak and um, uh, as though we can't accomplish anything but we have the power of the spirit and god loves and god delights to employ his spirit at the most difficult times for his people and this happens through i think of old testament israel just there Right at the Red Sea, about to be trampled and slaughtered by Pharaoh. Yeah. And what does God do? He opens the Red Sea, and he, and his people walk over on dry ground, and he swallows up Pharaoh and his army. God is always, always protecting his people if they're willing to march forward in the power of spirit and faith. That's what we need to live in.
0: Mm, yes. Uh, you also touch upon, uh, and today we're talking with Dr. P. Andrew Sandlin, founder and president of the Center for Cultural Leadership Um, You also draw attention to um, this thing called moral neutrality. And uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that, um, the dangers of that?
1: Well, yes. I mean, historically, uh, we could go a number of directions, but many Christians have somehow felt that uh, in the area of culture itself, that in the individual life and in the family, God's Word uh, should govern our lives. But sort of out in the culture, that's sort of an area of uh, neutrality. There sort of should be a, a common understanding, apart from the Bible, mm-hmm. apart from Jesus Christ, that both believers and unbelievers can agree on. But one doesn't really get that picture reading the Bible. The Bible says that unbelievers' minds and hearts are darkened. They need to be opened by the Holy Spirit of God. And even in the case of God's common grace, when unbelievers sort of can recognize even dimly the truth of the Word of God, it's because of this, a wide Christian culture surrounding them that they can recognize this truth. Uh, the notion that there could be any area of life that is neutral, such that Christians could say, well, we don't need to apply our Christian faith there. We don't need to apply it in science, because everybody knows that science is neutral. But in fact, then uh, that's just one example, Dan, science is not neutral. Uh, Modern science and all of our advancements began as a result of Christian presuppositions, not atheistic uh, presuppositions, but Christian presuppositions. The same is true in technology and in history and in vocation and in all other areas. So the Christian idea that, well, there are certain areas of life uh, that don't need to be Christian, in which we don't need to press the claims of Jesus Christ, First is false, and second, worse yet, is a denial of Christ's lordship in all of life and culture.
0: Yes, yeah, good point. Um, I like the simple phrase, and it's really a, a creedal statement, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. And and there's not one area that he's not Lord over. And so um, uh, it's really kind of simple, I think.
1: It is. Um And that's a phrase, I think, that almost all sincere Christians would affirm, formally at least, oh yes, Jesus is Lord, but uh, you'll often hear them say things like, and this was popular a few years ago, I want to make sure that Jesus sits on the throne, rules on the throne of my heart. Mm -hmm. That's true, of course, the Bible demands that, but one gets the impression what they mean by that is that in the private sphere of my own individual life, Jesus is Lord, and I really don't have to be concerned about Christ's Lordship, In the wider culture in education and in science and in vocation and in politics and in human history but jesus isn't just ruling on the throne of our heart he's actually ruling in the heavenlies according to acts 2 and elsewhere ruling over all things colossians 1 and ephesians 1 say and we must recognize that lordship and do our part under his authority to press the claims of that lordship in all of life
0: yes um Pacifist Objections, another section in your article. Um, people might say, well, this doesn't fit with the Sermon on the Mount. What is this guy talking about?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a, uh, an obvious one. I think that's an example of how it's very necessary to understand the historical um, situation in which uh, biblical statements arose. Of course, the most obvious one is in, you mentioned the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, when we are attacked as Christians, turning the other cheek, and um, if somebody compels you to carry a load a mile, do it two miles.
0: Um,
1: It's important to recognize that in the situation the Church was in and the disciples were in at the time uh, under Roman authority, that uh, they were in a a subservient position. And uh, I think what's more important is that a huge impact on jewishness and the jewish nation at the time was a group called the the zealots you even read about them in the bible and if you do more study you can even read more they believed that the responsibility of the jews was to rise up in armed revolutionary revolt against the roman occupiers and that they would bring in jehovah's kingdom by forcibly expelling these romans This was the sentiment behind those who came and wanted to make Jesus king. And you remember how Jesus responded? He said, "No, not because He's not king, but because He's not that kind of revolutionary king. Uh, He's not there to pick up arms to defeat the Roman Empire. He's there to, and here to change our hearts and lives, so we impact all of the world for His glory. So basically, those texts are saying, don't be a revolutionary." Uh, if you're in a very subservient uh, situation politically, don't try to pick up arms and attack. Mm. The Bible would never justify that. Uh, but recognizing that truth, which is vital, Christianity believes in regeneration, not in revolution. That's right. Doesn't mean that there are not appropriate ways to counterpunch against evil, which the Bible is very clear about.
0: Now, uh, towards the end of your article, and we've got uh, just a couple of minutes left, you mentioned a very interesting man. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, yeah. um, Russian novelist of the 20th century, um, he wrote he wrote something here. Maybe you can describe it in your own words about being in the camp after he, you know, he's basically captured, as it were, and the feelings he was going through. Can you describe that?
1: Yes, it's very weighty and very powerful. I hope your listeners can go read. Uh, that article called christian counterpunching uh, toward the end yes he said as we were in the camps we thought these of course concentration camps after the soviets had captured he said if just a few of us had resisted the security officers that had come uh, to arrest good people i mean there were just the security officers from the soviet state that somehow whose presence paralyzed hundreds of thousands of people, and they would wait quietly, shivering in the night, for the security officers to come and arrest them. And he said, had we merely just taken just some axes and weapons to beat them back, to scare them off, even Stalin, he said, even Stalin would not have been strong enough uh, to oppose us if we had, on every occasion, if people had resisted. And to people who think, well, that would not be appropriate, I would have to ask, well, If it were possible for you to prevent the slaughter of 60 to 80 million Russians by opposing in uh, 1917 to uh, to the early 1920s, opposing the state security apparatus, would you be willing to do that? Well, they don't like to answer that question, Dan, but it was was a refusal, he says, to, to fight back in a godly and faithful way against tyranny. That permitted this terrible, horrific Holocaust in the Soviet Union.
0: Yeah, and the contrast there—it's not a revolution; it's a, it's a really a defense
1: of innocent it is. people. Yes, he's not he's not asking or telling people to take up arms to overthrow the government, no. but to resist tyranny.
0: That's right. Well, I want to thank you very, very much uh, today. We've been talking with Dr. P. Andrew Sandlin, and um, give us your website address and maybe one prayer request. That the folks can remember uh, regarding you, Andrew.
1: Well, thank you for that opportunity. So, you can read about the Center for Cultural Leadership at ChristianCulture.com, and uh, you can also read um, my blog at docsanlon.com. And then I put out an e newsletter, among a number of other writings, but an e newsletter every Friday on substack.com. Just Google my name and you can sign up there for free. Uh, prayer request. I have been just praying by god 's grace that He would increase the influence of CCL tenfold, and in the last few months, Dan, by His grace, God has just brought hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in uh, totally by His grace and for mm. His glory. Pray Praise that God continues to do that because I think if there 's any time this world conquering godly message is necessary it 's today when so much of the church is passive and evil is so active and aggressive.
0: Mm. I really appreciate your work, P. Andrew Sandlin, and um, um, also appreciate the support that your wife gives to this ministry, and uh, please keep up the good work, and thank you for joining us today, Andrew.
1: You bet, Dan. Until next time, and God bless you.
0: And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.